Amen. Thanks. All right. The kids are now dismissed, and uh, they're going out the back. So that's the back there in case uh, the nursery crew has arrived. So if you still have a, a baby in tow, you're welcome to uh, take that baby to the nursery or keep it in here. It's fine either way. Um, I was just thinking how Ava is so excited to worship and how if we could just bottle that and then distribute it somehow. I don't know how many people were watching her dance as we sang, but, um, or, you know, as we could maybe, uh, if we could somehow gather that intensity for uh, the sermon, that would be good too. All right, but uh, we're going to continue in the life of Christ, and as we do, we've, we've been walking through the uh, the birth, you know, the last few weeks with Christmas. And just to think about this, if you were to write your own life story, your own biography, you would do it a lot the same way. You would start with um, your where and when, how you were born, you know, primarily. Um, you know, for me, I was born in Massachusetts, but we lived in uh, New Hampshire. And so there's a little little detail there that, that is interesting for us because we were really close to the Massachusetts board. My parents are here, by the way, so they can um, probably, you know, share more. Would you like to come up and share a little bit about the joy of, of when I was born? Um, no, we, we probably don't. But we lived in New Hampshire, uh, but the closest hospital is Massachusetts, so I was born in Massachusetts. But uh, you would start with, you know, my family origin. I was born in a pastor's home. I, I had uh, six, there were six kids in the home and, and things like that. Um, but then as you kind of um, begin to tell your story, you're going to jump from uh, some of those details to significant events in your life that, that either happened to you or things that you experienced, things that you did. Um, you know, we oftentimes jump to... Uh, either tragedy, you know, uh, you had a death in the family, uh, you, you, or some significant move. We moved from, in our case, from New Hampshire to South Dakota, and then from South Dakota to Illinois. Um, so you might have things like that in your family, or there was a divorce, or there was, you know, a, a job loss, or a job change, or things like that that happened uh, that are significant, that kind of structure or define some things that happen to you or that, that define who you are, right? And in the Gospels, what you have is the story of Jesus' birth and then a leap from that to his ministry at 30 years old, right? And, and almost nothing in between except for this one story that we're going to look at today. And the question is, there's two questions about that. One is, why is there so little? Okay, and, and part of the answer is because uh, what we were talking about just a second ago, uh, the issue of the, the reality of what happened in those uh, intervening years was really not that significant in, in one sense. Why were the Gospels written? They were written to tell us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing, John especially says that, that by believing in his name, uh, we can have life in his name. That by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we have life in his name. We take that definition of why John wrote his gospel, and we can really attribute it to all the gospels. 
These things are written, the Gospels are given, to give us a confidence and a validity and an understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. So the, the years between his birth, that the birth is important because we have to know that he is descendant from David, that he, he is holy, that he is the Son of God, that he born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, all those things are prophesied. We have to know that those things came true. Um, but then what we see in, in uh, his childhood is that he lives a pretty normal childhood. He, he's not uh, speaking parables at two years old, okay? He's not performing miracles. He's not raising the dead and healing people when he's 15. He didn't do those things. He probably was uh, pretty kind, conscientious, well-behaved, uh, probably to the extent that his brothers and sisters um, really kind of were annoyed with him. Would you agree? Like, he's the golden child. Mary's always like, oh, he's born. He's the miracle child. He was born without, I mean, anyway. So all those things are happening, but primarily he is growing up in a normal way. Now, there's something else, though, which is if, if his childhood is very, very normal, more or less, then why this story? Why this one in particular? And what we're going to see is the, the same answer. The, the reality here is that uh, there's something about this particular instance and event that speaks to the nature of who Jesus is, that he is fully human and he also is divine, that he's unique in his nature. Uh, and this story kind of reveals that. But who does it necessarily reveal it to? Uh, let me give you just a little bit of background on the Gospel of Luke, okay? Uh, Luke is the only writer of the Gospels or any scripture Okay, in the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, he's the only Gentile writer of Scripture. So who is he? He's a traveling companion of who? Anybody know? The Apostle Paul. Um, so he travels with Paul, and he gets the gospel mostly from Paul. Paul says this, that uh, when he was converted, he was on the road to Damascus, and Jesus himself appeared to him, blinded him, and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And at that point, Paul believes in Jesus, and, and uh, three days later, his scales fall from his eyes, and, and he becomes a, uh, one of the greatest missionaries ever. But Paul says that he did not learn the gospel from any human being. He didn't go and talk to Peter. He didn't go and talk to uh, any of the other guys, you know, uh, even you know John Mark. He didn't go talk to him. He didn't go talk to Matthew and find out what was going on, or Philip, or... Paul, um, he learned the gospel, he said, directly from Jesus himself. And he went into Arabia for three years. And I, here's what I think, okay? And this is just my interpretation. Paul was a, an expert in the Bible, even at that point. He was a Pharisee. He was a scholar. He was a genius. He was trained uh, to a great extent, well-educated under Gamaliel. He knew the Bible, but what he was looking for in the Old Testament scriptures was the rules and regulations and how to be perfect. After he was converted, I think he continued to study the, the scriptures, but now he's looking for Jesus. He's looking for the Messiah. He's looking for the evidence and the understanding of who he is on every page, and he's finding it on every page. On top of that, 
Paul is being told and, and revealed uh, who Jesus is by Jesus himself in that whole process for that three years. The Holy Spirit is working in his life, revealing these things from the scriptures. Jesus is telling him these things. Paul is communicating them to Luke. Luke is taking all those things and he's writing them down. And he's also, Luke is interviewing other people. He says, I made an orderly account. I, I'm, I went through the process of investigating. Paul is his primary resource. But according to what we see in Scripture, here's what I would propose, is that his other main person that he is interviewing is Mary herself, the mother of Jesus. What you see in Luke's Gospel is that uh, some significant and unique um, references to what Mary experiences and what Mary thinks and what Mary feels. Uh, he says that Mary pondered these things in her heart. How did, he, how did Luke know that? I mean, the Holy Spirit could reveal that, I'm sure, but I think Mary told him that, and that when we see this particular story of Jesus's childhood, I think it was a story that Mary shared with Paul or with Luke about what happened because it was so impressive to her about who Jesus is, and so that's the framework that we're going to uh, use to look at this passage. So let's stand as we read God's Word this morning, Luke chapter. Two, and we're going to start actually in verse 40, um, which kind of ends uh, a previous uh, section about uh, Mary and Joseph taking Jesus, going to, to Nazareth to live, but um, uh, uh, you'll see why this is important in a moment. It says, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And Father, we thank you for your word. Again, we are just so overwhelmed with your presence and your power and your grace and your love and the fact that we can worship on this new year. Lord, that you've given us another year to glorify you. And Father, we pray that you would... Uh, take it and use it, uh, that you would manifest yourself in our lives in a, a way that uh, is new and is powerful and is, um, is unique to what we've ever experienced, Lord, that we would know a, a greater depth of your peace, your presence, your love, and your purpose, and uh, that we would continue to grow like Jesus did in wisdom 
and in favor with you. God, we just thank you that we can open your word today. Lord, I pray your spirit would give us grace to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I don't know if you caught it, um, but in verse 40 it says, uh, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then in verse 52, it says again, and very similarly, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Does that sound pretty similar? Okay, and here's what you see in Scripture. Uh, when something is repeated like that, one thing is it's a confirmation. It's, it's repeated for emphasis. But it's also, especially when it's separated like this uh, by a story, uh, it is pointing to, it's like a bracket for that story. And what that means is you interpret what's in between the bracket according to what's on the outside. And, and that would say that there's something about how Jesus grew and who he was that's pointing back to the middle of what this story means. Okay, this is the interpretation. And one thing is, and we've already mentioned it, is that his childhood was fairly ordinary. He grew in stature. Like, as you would expect him to. Like, he, he grew up like any other child would. He, he did not just appear on the earth as a fully formed being, do a ministry, and then take off. Okay? He, he was a human being. He was fully human. That's part of what this means. But it, the other part is that there's a unique relationship that Jesus has with his Father. A unique relationship that he has with God. It says... The favor of God was with him. The word favor there is the word charis in Greek, and it means grace. Most of the time it gets uh, translated grace. Uh, and what that is is that God's um, unique relationship with his son is so significant in his life that it defines who he is. And people can have favor with God, and, and God has a lot of grace for all of us. This is unmerited favor, right? And this is what we, we refer to as grace as unmerited favor. You don't deserve God's grace, but he, in love, gives it to you anyway. But this is, this is different. This is a, a favor that is the product of a son-father relationship. It's, it's a unique bond that he has with God. And so everything that you're going to see here is pointing to these two issues, okay? So let's walk through this uh, briefly, uh, as we may say briefly, but um, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Now, what would happen here is that um, the, the people, the men especially, were required to go to certain festivals every year. There was four of them that they were required to go to every year. That was not really a possibility for everybody, okay? So what they would do, what they would allow for in their custom is that a representative could go to Jerusalem uh, on behalf of a community. What you're seeing here, and we're not going to dive into this too deep, but what you're seeing here is that Mary and Joseph are particularly um, devout people, religious people. They're pious people. They're, they're authentically uh, wanting to worship God. Because a trip like this that they would take every year is going to be a really significant expense on their part. Not, you have to understand the culture and the economy. Uh, but here we have Joseph and Mary who are fairly common as far as their income. Okay, And what you saw earlier in Luke was that 
they, they could not afford a lamb for the sacrifice. They had to give two pigeons, which means that they are poor. Uh, I don't think that probably changed much throughout their, their lifetime. But they were working and they were making some money. And what we would have is usually you would make today what would feed your family tomorrow. That's why in the Bible times you see that they get paid on the day that they work. You don't save your wages until the end of the week. You, you can't afford to do that. You need, my, you need your pay today so you can feed your family tomorrow. So what would happen for a trip like this? It's a week-long festival. And to get there from Nazareth is going to take you three days. And so you're going to spend a minimum of two weeks to go to this festival every, every year. That means for two weeks, you're not going to make your normal income. And on top of not making your normal income, which you need to just pay your daily wage or to, to feed your family for the next day, on top of that, you're going to spend extra money traveling and spending time in a, a foreign city for a week right? How, how much time would it take you to save up for a two-week vacation? All year? <laughs> okay, this is going to take them all year to save up for this vacation, because uh, that's what it is. They're, they don't have vacation pay. It's not like Joseph's going to get paid by his boss for the two weeks that he's gone. He's not getting paid. He's going to spend extra money. So this is a significant, all I'm saying is this is a significant sacrifice to do this every year. And, and to a degree that is almost mind-blowing to you and me. Like, it, this is a huge undertaking, and they are so devoted to making sure this is going to happen that they do it every year, every year, every year, okay? And here's the deal. Well, you would expect that from Mary and Joseph. They're raising the, the Messiah, right? They, they, of course, they're pious people. They're devoted people. They go to uh, the, the city of Jerusalem. They do this thing, and here's what happens that for 11 years they've been doing this, Jesus has been growing up, and, and they've had him, because as you have small children, what do you do with small children when you're traveling? You put them on a leash, right? And you keep them close, and you don't let them out of your sight, because you don't want them to be lost in the, a big city. So what's going on now that Jesus is 12 and they're traveling is that Jesus has come to a point where they kind of give him a little bit of freedom. And this is why or how this could happen, is that when they have gathered their caravan, this is how they would travel, um, they probably would have uh, met at the temple because the temple is a large open area. Uh, it's the biggest significant you know, tourist site in Jerusalem by far. So they could meet there. Uh, they gather all their people, and they're about ready to head out. Jesus has gone through this you know, 11 times, and he probably remembers five or six of those times pretty easily. Would you agree? So, um, okay, Jesus, uh, we're getting together. But as they're going to travel, here's what they're going to do. The women and the children are going to go in front. And the men are going to bring in the, the, the behind. They're going to come after the women and the children. They kind of travel in two separate groups like that. I don't know exactly why they did that. I think, in my own experience, probably so the men didn't get in trouble. Um, because when I've been with my family um, in different places, and I go ahead because I know the way, 
and I don't wait for my wife, especially, and kids, and then I get in trouble for not waiting. Does anybody else have that experience? Just Mike? Okay. Well, Joseph and the Jewish men were smarter than us, okay? And so they said, you go ahead, we'll bring up the rear, we'll make sure if you drop anything, we'll pick it up, and you just go ahead. And they... So here's what is going on, is that probably Mary is assuming that Jesus, being 12 years old, wants to be with the men, right? 12 years old, you, you want to be with the guys. So she's assuming that he's with the guys. Joseph is probably assuming Jesus, 12 years old, is with the women and children because he's 12 years old. He wants to be with his friends and the kids and whatever. So they're probably, I'm, I'm assuming this, they're, they're thinking that he's with the other group. And you get to the end of the day, now you're finally getting together to camp or, or stay the night somewhere, whatever you're doing. Okay, let's gather the family. There's probably other kids. I'm sure by this time, Joseph and Mary have five or six kids. Okay, maybe more. I mean, it's not unusual in that time and culture to have a kid almost every year. They could have 10 kids by this point. Okay, so Litweilers, you're halfway there. Okay, so you gather the kids and, oh, where's Jesus? Well, I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. Okay, well, maybe he's with some other family. Maybe he's with the other kid. And they go search around. So this is why it took three days um, is because one day travel, 20 miles is what they would typically travel in a day. They can't travel back 20 miles in, in the night, so they spend the night. They go back the next day to go look for Jesus. Now it's nighttime. You're not going to go search around the city at, at night. So they wait till the next day, and that's why it's the third day by the time they find him. They probably spend the day looking around Jerusalem, where they'd been, people they know, whatever. But then finally dawns on them, well, let's go to the temple. Maybe he's there, and they, that's where they find him. And here's what happens. He's understanding things, and he's ask, asking questions that are astounding. Now, um, you would assume, as the Son of God, that that's not shocking, okay? Would you assume that? He, he, I'm not saying he's omniscient, but he certainly is, um, has a level of understanding that would be shocking for any 12-year-old, because he's the Son of God. It, but here's what he actually says. They're saying, why did you treat us like this? Um, and his answer is really our focus here. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Two words there are really significant. Must and fathers. Okay, those two words tell us everything we need to know about why Jesus was left there that time. When he says, I must be in my father's house, here's what I picture it as being. It says that zeal for, for my father's house will consume me. This is what the, the prophecy said and that Jesus fulfilled when he uh, went and drove out the money changers from the temple later in his ministry. The zeal for his house would consume him, that he, he had this, this desire somehow um, because of uh, the, the Holy Spirit within him uh, to have a focus on the temple. When they went to the temple to get ready to leave, I'm, again, I'm assuming this, uh, but he was so focused on the temple that when they left, he may not have even noticed. 
and they didn't notice that he was not with them. They really needed to grab a hold of him and say, let's go, Jesus. And they didn't do that because he's a 12-year-old and he should be able to come along when we're leaving. But he stays because his focus is on the temple. There's only a few places that say uh, what Jesus must do in his own words. He says, here, I must be in my father's house. And then there's only two other things that he says he must do. Okay, you want to know what they are? Okay, I got a yes, so I'll I'll keep going. He says in uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom. Would you have expected that? He must preach. He was born to preach. In fact, he says, I was sent for this purpose. He has to proclaim uh, the good news that he is the Savior. Uh, And then there's only one other thing that he must do in his own words. Can anybody guess what that would be? Why was Jesus born? I heard a lot of things, but I think I heard he must die. And that's exactly what he says. He says in Luke chapter 9 and verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed on the third day, be raised. In John 3.14, he says the Son of Man must be lifted up. So he, he must go to the cross. Those are the only three things he ever says in the Gospels that he must do. He must be crucified. He must preach. And he says this one other thing, I must be in my Father. Isn't that interesting? That out of all the things that he would say that he must do, that being in his Father's house is, is one of those things? Is that, like, weird to you? It's significant, anyway. No matter if you think it's... Yeah, it makes sense to me or not, but it's a significant thing because he doesn't say he must do very many things, but it's one of the things that he must do. And so here's what you find. He says, I must be in my, whose house? You and I take this for granted. We have grown up referring to God as Father. Would you agree? It is the primary way that we refer to the creator of the universe. He's the Father. He's our Father. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray, our Father, right? That's how you're supposed to refer to God. It's the respectful way to refer to God. It's the, it's the way that we pray. It's the way that we understand. It's the way that we think about God as His Father. In Jesus' day, that was shocking that He would say that God is His Father. They did not refer to God as Father. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's only a few instances where God is ever even called Father, and they're, they're referring to him as Creator, uh, that he is like the fo- founding fathers of our country. Like he's, he's the one who, who made this. He's the one who started this. He's the one who generated life. Not necessarily that he is Dad. But when Jesus says Father, he says he's my Dad. In being very literal. And then later on in life, when he's talking about God being his father, you remember what they wanted to do to him? They wanted to stone him to death because he was, he was uh, uh, speaking blasphemy. You're saying God is your father. You're saying that you're equal with God, that you, you're, you're not just saying he's creator, but he's actually, you're the only begotten. That's, you can't say that. You shouldn't refer to God as father. And he, he refers to God as father constantly, and then he tells us that we have this unique relationship too. Because why? 
because he is able to uh, allow and to uh, initiate and to instigate a unique relationship between you and the Father that you did not have without him. You could call God Father in terms of creator, but you could not call him Father in terms of dad until Jesus did what he came to do. Right? He came to be sin that you might become the righteousness of God. We are called new creatures in Christ. That we receive a new nature when we receive Christ. That those who believe in his name now can have life in his name. And what he does is he now uh, allows for and makes a way for every any, anyone who will believe in him to have this unique relationship with the Father. Now, this is so important. <laughs> he says, I must be in my Father's house. And I already referenced this. Later on, it says the zeal for the house of the Lord would consume him. And he drives out the money changers and all those people. And you remember what he says? He's referring to scripture, a, a prophecy about this. But he says that to my father's house shall be a house of what? A prayer. And we refer to this terminology, this story, uh, and we, we talk about it like the church should be a house of prayer. Now, would you agree that the church should be a house of prayer? Would you get an amen on that? Is that what that's talking about, though? Because did this building replace the temple in Jerusalem? Or any church building replace the temple in Jerusalem? What did he says, the word says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You yourself. And when he says, my father's house shall be a house of prayer, I'm telling you, he does not mean the building. I'm not saying that the building shouldn't be a place of prayer. It obviously and absolutely should be. But what he's referring to is you and me. That I as a believer who has the Holy Spirit, who now, by faith in Jesus, has a unique relationship with God the Father, and I can call him my dad because he has uh, allowed me to be adopted because of my faith in Jesus, and I have now am brother with Christ, and you're brother or sister with Christ through that faith. Now I am to be a house of prayer, a person of prayer. Here's what the brackets help us to understand. Jesus grew physically as you would expect him to, but he also grew spiritually. Isn't that hard to imagine? You mean Jesus grew spiritually? It says this, okay? 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He had a unique relationship with his father. He didn't he didn't rest on that or stop there or think that that was enough any more than we should. You have a unique relationship with God if you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, amen? The world does not have that. Those who don't trust in Jesus don't have that. It's a unique thing. It changes your nature. It changes your mind. It changes your destiny. It changes your future. It changes where you're going forever. 
that you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have a unique relationship with God. Praise the Lord for that. How many of us think that, that that's it? I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm good. Jesus himself needed to grow in his relationship with his Father throughout his lifetime. I, I can't even wrap my mind around that. He's God in the flesh. The Bible says that he is the exact representation of the divinity in human form. Philippians says that your, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He's, he's God, and so, but yet he's going to grow in his relationship with his Father throughout his lifetime. I, I can't really understand that mystery, okay? But I can tell you that the point of it is to point you and me to a deeper walk with God. That no matter how saved and how confident I might be in my salvation, and no matter how certain I am that I'm going to heaven, that I need every single day to, to make sure that I am a house of prayer and that I enjoy my relationship with my Father. And here's the tragedy of the Christian life for a lot of people is that we are a lot like Paul before he's converted. We're searching the scriptures for the rules. What are the things that God wants me to do and I better obey all those things and make sure I don't mess up. And I mean, that's, that's the legalism. That's the Pharisaic thing that a lot of Christians get into is I want to, and there's nothing, I've obviously wrong with obeying God. We need to obey God. But the draw of Jesus into this new life is not simply to be all about the rules, but to really be all about the what? The relationship. The deeper I go in my walk with the Father, and the more I have a relationship with Him, the more I automatically want to do the things that He's that are in His will. And I don't have to wreck myself all the time trying to please Him by obeying the rules. I, I really want to dwell more deeply in prayer, more constantly more consistently. Amen? How, let me just ask you this. New Year, how's your prayer life? Just ask yourself that. How's, how's your prayer life? Could it be better? Father, we thank you that you want more of us. You want us to, to know you more. You want more of our heart, more of our mind, more of our concerns, our questions. You want it all. You, you want us to, to be a house of prayer, to grow, to walk with you, to dwell in your presence, Lord. I, I pray, Lord, that we would do that this year more and more. Lord, as we study your word, we thank you for um, the truth and the power and the wisdom. Lord, help us not to simply uh, read your word and forget to pray, uh, but to become really people of prayer. To make it the first thing we do every morning, the last thing we do every night, and uh, to, to bring our thoughts and our hearts and our concerns to you all through the day. Lord, let us pray unceasingly like your word says we can and should, and to not just do it as a 
a religious practice or, or a rule to follow, please, God, help us to do it because it's, there's so much joy in it, so much peace in it and power just to be able to talk to our Heavenly Father. What a gift we've been given. Help us to truly um, appreciate that, Lord, for your glory, for our sake, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to encourage you and, and uh, really call you, if, if you don't know Jesus, if you have not received him, intentionally asked him to come into your life, would you do that today? If you were to ask yourself right now, do I, have I come into that relationship? Could you say, yes, I, I definitely have received Jesus as my Lord and Savior? If, if that's not true, it, it can be true in a moment. You just have to ask. And Jesus will never turn away anyone who asks. Amen? And if it is your reality, you have trusted Jesus, then the next question is, will you commit to be in a house of prayer and growing? And the altar is a place just to make that commitment. We'd love to invite you to come for even a moment. Um, but let's stand and sing as we do.